From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweaving. Welcome to Episode 5 of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. Today, Terry Dubray and I speak with residents of northern New York who are helping to build a new grassroots movement in response to the urgency of climate crisis. Inspired by a 16-year-old Swedish activist and the idea of a Green New Deal, they're trying to change the public conversation and envision a more sustainable future. I heard some research yesterday, and they're measuring emotional response to different terminology. Global warming, very little response. Climate change, very little response. Climate crisis, weather destabilization, environmental destruction, terms like that got people's attention, you know. Think about just the words warming, change, destabilization, crisis, destruction. I mean, they all create very different things. So I think, you know, using terminology that shows the urgency, you know, I think is, is really, is really critical. That was Ginger Story Welch, a progressive North Country activist. We met her at the park in downtown Canton, where local activists were gathered for a climate vigil. This is a new feature of the local activist scene, held on the first Friday of every month. As you'll notice later, the voices of the people at the vigil must compete with the noise from the internal combustion engines of the cars driving past the park. It was a loud reminder of the very crisis that the folks at the vigil were there to highlight. As we talked with them, the overwhelming theme was urgency. Inspired by the example of 16-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, who's been one of the public faces of the climate movement in the past year, They spoke passionately about the need for immediate action. It's the same theme that drove the recent viral video from Bill Nye, host of the popular children's TV program, Bill Nye the Science Guy. At the end of a segment on HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Nye set a tabletop globe on fire with a torch and told his viewers to pull their heads out of the sand. By the end of this century, if emissions keep rising, the average temperature on Earth could go up another four to eight degrees. What I'm saying is the planet's on fucking fire. There are a lot of things we could do to put it out. Are any of them free? No, of course not. Nothing's free, you idiots. Grow the fuck up. You're not children anymore. I didn't mind explaining photosynthesis to you when you were 12, but you're adults now, and this is an actual crisis. Got it? Let's bring it back to the local scene here in the North Country. Remember what Ginger Story Welch told us about the need to change the way we talk about the issue? Major news outlets are starting to do that. Recently, the Guardian newspaper announced that it would be replacing the term climate change with stronger terms such as climate emergency, crisis, or breakdown. The whole point of that approach is to convey a sense of urgency and to inspire action. So what does that mean on a local level? In the rest of this episode, we're going to spotlight some of the strategies that local activists are using in northern New York, starting with those monthly vigils. My name is Alex Kalk. I'm from Little River Community School. This is important because this is our earth, and we only have one to deal with, and we don't have another chance. So even if this is small, even if it seems like it's useless, um, we have to do something, and this is what we're doing. 
sometimes we exist in our own bubble where we believe that everybody believes the way we believe. And it's important to see that not everybody does, and that's why we're still out here, and that's why we do this. We've met with the fact that a teenager like Alex is at the forefront of this local effort is symbolic of the direction the national and global climate movement is taking. Inspired by Thunberg and others, North Country activists are clearly prioritizing the voices of the next generation. For Ginger Story Welch, the ongoing Our Children's Trust lawsuit provides reason for hope. On its website, Our Children's Trust identifies itself as an organization that elevates the voice of youth to secure the legal right to a stable climate and healthy atmosphere for the benefit of all present and future generations. Story Welch told us more about the lawsuit. They are suing the government over its actions, so things like uh, leasing federal lands to fossil fuels. Um, it's also based on the public trust, which is an ancient law, and it's a law that's embedded in our, in our Constitution. It's also embedded in every single state. It says that it's the government's responsibility to protect resources that we have in common, so things like the air, the water, and things like that and that the federal government has been a violation of that. So it's considered a constitutional climate case. Some people say that it will be, the, when, if it happens, and I expect that it will, I'm being optimistic here, um, that it will be the case of the century. Um, what they are looking for is nothing monetarily. They are looking for a climate recovery plan, that, that that's what they would consider an, an adequate ad outcome, that the federal government would have to come up with a plan on how we are going to recover. So in 2015, 21 young people sued the federal government over climate change. And uh, when it happened, everybody said, oh, you know, sure, 21 kids are going to sue the government. Yeah, that'll go far. Well, the federal government has tried to dismiss this case multiple times, and each time the case has survived. It went to the U.S. Supreme Court last July. It went to the Supreme Court again in October. And in both cases, the Supreme Court said that the case could proceed. The federal government is once again trying to dismiss it by the almost unprecedented, some people say it is unprecedented, effort to appeal the case before it has even been tried. And so on June 4th there will be a hearing where that appeal will be considered whether it can go forward or not. We expect it to go all the way to the Supreme Court for the third time most likely. Um, and I think a lot of the, the young people are recognizing this is my future, you know, and they are realizing that they're being screwed. Also and at the vigil, the we spoke with Dr. Susan Powers, an environmental engineer who teaches at Clarkson University. She echoed what Story Welch said about the role of young people, but cautioned that the growing awareness of climate crisis is a heavy burden to bear. I do think there's a lot less of the, oh, that's not real. Uh, and I think that's because we see it now. It used to be it's going to happen in 50 years, it's going to happen to the Maldives and Bangladesh. It's not happening to me right now. I think people see that it's happening to me right now. And that makes a big difference in people accepting that it is happening. It's still another step to then accept that we have to change. And that's going a little bit further. Uh, I have a couple students, one who I work with uh, through the UU Church and one who's like about 12. 
and one who is one of my Clarkson students who have really just given up. And they are so skeptical that people are going to change, and I, that makes me so sad. Uh, so I see some just like, why bother? We're doomed. And, you know, especially in a 12-year-old, that it's really sad to see that a, a student is that skeptical that people will change in a way that his life will be positively impacted. Um, and unfortunately, I see more of that. So what kind of changes are needed? Power says there's no point pretending the change will be easy, but she identifies public transportation and a reduction in consumerism as two areas where deliberate action by individuals and communities can make a difference. In one's daily life, I think one of the things that we forget about and that we don't do often enough is just think about buying less stuff. All the stuff we buy took a lot of energy to make, right? We think about heating our homes and our vehicles, but the stuff we buy and the food we eat, uh, so eating more local food, eating less factory, big farm beef. Uh, if it's your, your neighbor farm beef, that's not a problem, but agriculture is a huge part. So eating less meat, it doesn't have to be a vegetarian or vegan, but just eating less meat. And then I do think also, you know, the fewer car trips, thinking about a smaller vehicle, uh, we spend uh, too many people, just, I don't understand, is standing here and watching these cars go by, these huge vehicles with one person in them. I don't get it. And the, the more we can think about making choices in our big capital expenditures, but also the little stuff too. I think public transportation is needed and I think it needs to be coordinated. So right now I see each of the four universities and the counties have their own transit system. And so we see these NYSARC buses go around with three people each and it's because the universities can't get coordinated with the county to make one bus system. If we could have one bus system then I think there could be more runs and I think that it would be a lot more convenient. But part of our change in personal habits yeah. is that we decide to go when the bus goes rather than we go when we want to go. And that's a huge change in thinking about the me, 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 and it's got to be my convenience. Um, so I think it's going to take time, but, you know, when I look at these, so some convenience will have to go. And I think in public transportation, that's always the case for public transportation, but then you just get in the habit. Story Welch struck an optimistic tone when it came to the local situation, arguing that a shift to renewable energy could make a major economic impact in the North Country. She also emphasized that it's worth taking a look at what went wrong in recent years when energy companies tried to bring wind power to small communities in St. Lawrence County. This area really stands to gain you know, in terms of renewable energy and things like that, you know, when it's done correctly, you know, going in and talking about, you know, how can we do wind in an area like this so that it's, it works and it's not divisive, you know, talking to the people and saying, what would make this palatable to you? What would make you accept this, you know? Um, you know, I, I think there's just, you know, a lot of things, you know, the biofuel, how do you do that responsibly? For a moment, she zoomed back out to the planetary level noting the warning of Dr. Kurt Steger at Paul Smith's college that failure to end our addiction to fossil fuels could result in a needed recovery time of at least 100,000 years. Conservatively, 
We are changing the earth at a geological level. Think back to when you were in school and they talked about the Jurassic time and the you know, Paleo Eocene. I think that's the level at which we are changing this planet. That, sh that should be a major alarm to all of us. We were born in the Holocene. There are people today who say the Holocene has been left behind and we are now in the Anthropocene. That we have changed the, the planet to that degree. You know, when I say that, you know, it's, it's so important for us to be educated on this and to realize what we are doing. Agriculture came about during the Holocene because of the relatively stable climate and we are destabilizing our climate on a daily basis as we continue to burn fossil fuels. You know, we, we just can't keep doing it. I think that we need to understand that this weather destabilization that we are creating is long-term, it's pretty much irreversible, and it's a delayed effect, and that's what terrifies me, quite frankly, because I realize that the effects that we are seeing today were actually cooked in a few decades ago. And the actions that we take today affect things a few decades from now. So it's not something that we can wait until things get really bad to do, because by that time, because of the delayed nature of it, it's just too late. And, and I think people really need to get that and we need to, you know, Greta Thunberg says, I don't want you to talk to me about hope. I want you to panic. I want you, I want you to realize that we have to do something now, you know, and I, I think that's, that's. You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Contributions from readers and listeners play a central role in helping us continue and expand our grassroots media-making efforts. If you'd like to support our work, just visit weavenews.org slash donate. Now, back to the show. After hearing these voices at the climate vigil, we thought it would be helpful to check in with someone who studies climate change for a living. What kind of knowledge is being generated? And how do researchers make sense of the challenges we're facing as we try to find ways to respond to our climate crisis? My name is John Rosales. I am an associate professor of environmental studies at St. Lawrence University. And I've been studying climate change for 25 years or so, uh, either as a student or uh, now as a scholar, professional. My area is mainly at the global level through the United Nations and their efforts, uh, but more recently now, since 2009, I'm focusing on the Arctic. So I'm most well-versed up there or globally, but obviously I'm interested in what's happening locally as well and nationally. The big reports are the fourth National Climate Assessment Report, which comes out from a dozen or so uh, federal agencies um, George Herbert Walker Bush started that whole process, and now we're in the fourth iteration of that. Uh, so he signed an act of Congress where the federal government needs to study and assess the latest science on climate change coming out of the United States and focused on the United States. Uh, so like I said, we're in the fourth iteration of that. Uh, and all the big departments that you would imagine, you know, energy, the environment, transportation, commerce, all of them come together and they assess the scientific literature on that and then publish those assessment reports. 
So that one came out, um, and that one famously said that uh, by far humans are the main culprit of climate change. And then that's important because now the news media, all of the subsequent legislation can say that. Uh, and essentially what they're saying is uh, the old argument that humans are not causing climate change, that argument is dead. Uh, we have moved on from that, well now, probably 20 years ago, we knew that it was caused by humans, but at least our federal government has definitively said that humans are the main culprit of climate change. So that fourth assessment report is important when it comes to, to policy in the United States. Our president said he would not read it, did not read it. Our former president, George W. Bush, when it came out when he was president, he said, well, that was just a product of the bureaucracy. And it is. It was intended always to be a product of the bureaucracy, but what it was intended to do was assess our, the latest science on climate change. And then at the international level, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change continues to do their work. The most recent report is the one-and-a-half-degree uh, report looking at essentially the benefits of keeping warming uh, to a one-and-a-half-degree Celsius limit as opposed to a two-degree Celsius limit. So what would be the benefit in keeping the planet that half a degree cooler, half a degree centigrade cooler. Uh, and that question came about because countries of the world were grappling with the possibility in 2021 of establishing a new limit under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Right now that limit is well below two degrees, that's the what the language says, and possibly considering one and a half degrees. But most of the science is pointing toward, well, one and a half degrees is better. Uh, there is no doubt that we're going to be better off with one and a half degrees than two degrees. So that report was actually looking at that meeting in 2021 when they'll reassess that temperature target. They call it a target, which is a bad term. It's actually a limit. It's not like we want to get to the target. It's something we want to avoid and, and stay underneath. So that, that report got a lot of press and and has been very instrumental, I think, in guiding action and policy. Uh, and then the sixth assessment report is going to come out uh, starting in 2020, and that's the really big assessment report where um, the writers, the authors of these big reports, look at all the latest scientific evidence and then write it up in a way that policymakers can understand. Uh, that one's going to come out before that big meeting in the early 2020s. Uh, so that one will be important as well. We also asked Rosales to reflect on how the public discourse surrounding climate change may itself be changing. I think the discourse has been strong and progressive in Europe for a very long time, and Latin America as well. Uh, but it's increased recently here. Uh, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. So one is the science. Uh, the science keeps on coming out, uh, prompting us to acknowledge how serious this problem is. But also with the election of Donald Trump, I think there's a lot of reaction to that election that has been positive for the climate change uh, movement. I think Europe uh, recognized, for example, that they were now the leader globally once again. I think under Obama, they kind of left that up to us and the Chinese. but. 
Now it went back to them. So there's sort of a pendulum of power and leadership that ebbs and flows at the international level. Um, so almost immediately after Trump was elected and pulled back, then they, they stepped forward, uh, which is a great realization because uh, he's not the only person acting on this planet. We have seven and a half billion other people that have minds of their own, and we could all get together and, and act on this. Uh, but in the United States, then, you have those other minds that then got motivated with his election and his refusal to accept that it's real. Uh, and even beyond that, just to ridicule the impacts of climate change and ridicule the people that are studying it, uh, that motivated other people to get to work. So there's been a positive reaction to the inaction uh, in D.C. So I do see more action, more talk, more chatter, more activity in the United States. I can't say it's increased globally because it's it's really always been there. Uh, although with Greta Thunberg, uh, the Swedish young activist, I think she's really galvanized a, a movement in Europe. And that movement now is coming back here. I think it also has increased in, in Europe. And what about terminology? Is climate change a term that needs to be replaced? Can it accurately describe what we're dealing with and evoke the emotional response appropriate for the situation we are facing? Here's what Rosales had to say. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And we struggled with this for a, a couple decades. Uh, by struggling, I mean, what term do we use to, to get some action on this? Um, I think it's a fairly accurate term. Uh, I think global warming is as well. Uh, global warming is the global warming, and then the impacts, the repercussions of that play themselves out in climatic change. So there's nothing wrong with the term per se. We would expect to see all these uh, changes occur. I think the best way moving forward, though, is to call it what it is. Call it flooding, call it erosion, call it increased ice storms, call it Lyme disease, you know, call it increased tornado activity. Some of that may be related to global warming and climate change. We've had weeks now of thunderstorms, tornadoes, for example, in Oklahoma and Texas. That's something we would expect with increased warming. People understand tornadoes, people understand wildfires, people understand flooding, erosion, maybe increased pest outbreaks, famines. We understand those things, and we've dealt with those things for a very long time. So I think it's time that we call it what it is uh, and not use the umbrella term so much. Uh, so in that respect, I do agree that we need a new term for it. But we don't have to search, rack our brains for something new like climate chaos or climate crisis, which are fine, uh, but it'd probably be much easier if we just focused on the impacts and trying to describe as clearly as we can the day-to-day -day impacts, the way that we will be feeling these things. Many commentators have said that inaction on climate change is not an information deficit problem. It's not like we don't know enough about this. In the climate change community, we, we knew this was a big crisis back in the 1980s. What is the most effective way to communicate that knowledge? That's the question we're, we're all struggling with. In order to understand how all of this connects with the political process, we sat down with a local grassroots organizer who's working to put the North Country on the map of an emerging national movement. 
So my name is Tony Kennedy. I live in Potsdam, New York, and I'm the hub coordinator for Sunrise North Country, which is a hub that I've created from the larger national organization, Sunrise Movement. The Sunrise Movement is an army of young people who are working to mitigate the disastrous effects that climate change is bringing upon our world and our country. And the goal is to create millions of good jobs and stimulate the economy as we switch to 100% renewable energy sources. Well, I got involved because I'm a mother to two young children. And of course, as any parent does, you worry about their future, if they're going to be successful, what they're going to do. And when you constantly hear scientists say, we have about a decade to act, before we reach the point of irreparable harm, irreparable damage, the planet's not going to be habitable, it starts to weigh heavy on your mind thinking, I have these two young, smart, beautiful children, and what planet are we leaving them with? Am I going to leave them in an environment, in a world that they're able to thrive in and be successful in? So that's why I really think that I was mostly inspired to do this and to get involved because it starts with a grassroots effort, everything big does. So I'm trying to make a difference in any way that I can. Kennedy was eager to talk about the Green New Deal, an ambitious plan to connect the fight against climate change with the fight for economic justice. The Green New Deal was introduced in Congress in early 2019 by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey. And the National Sunrise Movement has made support for the plan a central part of its organizing work. The goal is to mobilize every aspect of American society to shift to 100% clean, renewable energy sources. That's the ultimate goal. The Green New Deal is not only about environmental protections. It also is a really an economic transformation that includes free higher education. It includes universal health care policies like Medicare for All a jobs guarantee. So it's really not only just about the environment, but really about our economic policies. I'm a nurse, so Medicare for All is absolutely essential in my mind. You hear this on the news, oh, someone died because they couldn't afford their insulin. And you're so emotionally detached from it because you hear it over and over again. But for me, this is my life. I actually have patients that I knew that I cared for that did die because they were too poor to pay. They did die because their insurance said, we're not going to help you pay for that medication. For example, uh, we feel like you've been in the hospital too long. We're no longer going to pay for you to be in the hospital. They forced the hospital to discharge these patients. They go home and they die because their insurance company thought that they were using up too many resources. And when you phrase it like that, how many resources is a human life worth? But that's why I support the Green New Deal. That's why I'm so passionate about it, because it not only addresses the climate crisis, but it also provides these economic securities like Medicare for All, like a federal jobs guarantee, like paid family medical leave, which I think people should be entitled to. One of the biggest challenges that we hear when we talk about the Green New Deal is how do you pay for this, which I think is largely a false narrative pushed by politicians that do accept fossil fuel money. It seems like we have endless pockets when it comes to war, when it comes to tax cuts for the wealthiest individuals in this nation. But when we actually have politicians who want to push for policies that will affect 
millions of Americans, it seems like the question we get, well, how do you pay for this? The frustrating part of that is, is that this is actually an economic stimulus program. This is going to create millions of jobs. Um, It's going to stimulate the economy. It's going to cause economic prosperity for Americans all over the country. We have to overcome the challenge of the question of how do we pay for this? When you also think about the climate crisis, it's going to cost billions of dollars each year for damages to American homes, communities, infrastructure. So we not only have to look at what the Green New Deal costs, but what cost does the Green New Deal avert? And people rarely ask that question. In other words, when it comes to the Green New Deal, we're not having an honest conversation yet. The reason we can't make headway on that, even though Medicare for All and all those economic policies poll very well with the American people, 70, 80 percent, is because we have politicians that accept money from corporations. They accept money from the fossil fuel industry, for example. So you have politicians that accept this money. So when they're accepting money from the fossil fuel industry, they're going to push this narrative that the Green New Deal is bad. They're going to roll back environmental protections. And if we push politicians to reject that money, then they won't have to answer to fossil fuel executives. And instead, they could fundraise from people that actually voted for them, and then they might actually represent those people instead. In the 2012 and 2016 general presidential debates, there were zero climate change questions. Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, they were never asked a single question about the environment. And in the numerous Democratic primaries that we had, and there were many, many of them, only about 1% of the questions were environmental. So one of the Sunrise Movement's summer mobilization programs is to change the debate and make the climate crisis a national conversation. Um, So if you're very involved on social media, the hashtag to get involved is hashtag change the debate. You can go to sunrisemovement.org slash change the debate. And the purpose of this is to ensure that the upcoming presidential primary debates, the general presidential debate has numerous environmental questions so that we don't have a repeat of the previous years where nobody was asking this question about what's your plan. And we really want to force them to answer the questions that we are asking. And we really want to make sure that climate crisis is being addressed in these debates. Kennedy emphasized that shifting the conversation at the national level also requires engaging with voters and building support for the Green New Deal at the local level. She told us about an upcoming event in Potsdam that's designed to do exactly that. One of the reasons why I'm organizing the town hall in this community is so that I can help to educate and inspire members of our community about what the Green New Deal actually is and talking with people in my community about how to answer their questions. You know, I would encourage anybody watching the large news outlets that are hearing, how do we pay for it? It's going to be very expensive. You hear numbers like $93 trillion thrown out, which have largely been debunked that it wouldn't actually cost that. But you hear that over and over again. And it would scare somebody um, if, if they're not really sure about what it is and they're just hearing the same thing. This is going to cost $93 trillion. Your taxes are going to increase it's easy for someone to say, no, of course I don't want that. So I'm hoping that this local town hall will help answer some of these questions. We're going to focus on how the fossil fuel industry has corrupted our politicians. We're going to talk about what the Green New Deal actually is, what it would do, and then how we get it passed. 
I'm hoping that we actually have people who support the Green New Deal who want to come and mobilize. And I, I would even appreciate if people who are on the fence or maybe even oppose it come because I'm hoping that once they hear that this will actually benefit their life, benefit their country, benefit the world, that we might even change some minds. So I'm really hoping that even people who are doubtful, I'm hoping that they would even come. It's May 29th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Potsdam Town Hall Community Room, which is 18 Elm Street in Potsdam. It's going to be informational and hopefully inspirational. Um, We plan to speak about the crisis and the impacts that the climate crisis has had. Um, We also plan to talk about how the corruption of our politicians with fossil fuel money has impacted legislation, has caused environmental protections that have been put in place to be rolled back. We're going to talk about what the Green New Deal is. We're going to have group discussions. We're going to have question and answer sessions. We're also going to have former congressional candidate Patrick Nelson come and speak. The audience can ask him any questions they might like. And then after we kind of sort out what the Green New Deal is, how the climate crisis has affected us, we're going to end with a pathway to power and talk about the things that we can do to make this happen. We don't want to limit it to residents of Potsdam. We're opening this up to anybody who wants to come. Canton, Madrid, Waddington, all of the county, people from outside the county. There's actually a Sunrise Hub in Plattsburgh. Um, We've made some of their members aware of our town hall. They just recently had one last week. There's another town hall for the Green New Deal happening in Saratoga the beginning of June. So we've invited some of them to come. So we're really just trying to get people from all over the North Country to attend. Thank you to everyone who appeared in this episode. As always, you can find more information about the materials and organizations mentioned on our program by visiting our podcast page at weavenews.org interweaving. But don't go away. At the end of this episode, you'll hear an audio extra. Swedish activist Greta Thunberg's now legendary remarks delivered at the 2018 United Nations Conference on Climate Change. For all of us here at Weave News, I'm Terry DeBray. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry DuBray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at Weave News. There you can find out how you can support us or join us in our work. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving. Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of Climate Justice Now. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. 
But to do that, we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. The year 2078 I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done, rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you.